Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we're still thinking about Fidel, who died Saturday. We'll have comment from Catherine Hansing. She's one of the leaders of The Nation Tours of Cuba. And we'll also talk politics with Walter Mosley, the creator of the Easy Rollins Mysteries, which have sold millions of copies in 20 languages. He's been thinking about how to bring about what he calls a shotgun marriage between capitalism and socialism. First up today, the news that's been driving Donald Trump wild, recounting the votes in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Michigan finally finished counting on Monday. Trump won there by 10,704 votes out of almost 4.8 million. That's less than a quarter of a percentage point. In Wisconsin, Trump is up by around 22,000 votes out of almost 3 million. And maybe you've heard the news about the recount being requested in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, not by Hillary Clinton, but by Jill Stein of the Green Party, who has raised at this moment about $6.5 million, which is required to conduct these recounts. For comment, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent, and his most recent book is People Get Ready. We reached him in Madison. John, welcome back. It is good to be with you, John, from the, uh, the center of uh, recount festivity. Yeah, once again, once again, you're at the center of, of the storm. But, but why is this such a stormy subject? Aren't recounts normal in American elections when they're close? Of course recounts are normal, John. They, they happen all the time. In fact, amusingly enough, as all this talk about the presidential recount has been surfacing and going national, Wisconsin, where I live, is currently conducting a recount in which the minority leader of the state Senate could get beat by a challenger. So they're very, very common. What's different about these proposed recounts in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania is that they're being proposed by the third-party candidate. And the third-party candidate, in this case, Jill Stein, acknowledges that uh, they're not all that likely to overturn the results. They're really aimed at you know, clarifying whether the procedures were appropriate, whether the machinery worked right, addressing concerns about that machinery, addressing concerns that some have raised about hacking, a host of other, of other matters. And so this is a little quirky, but the bottom line, the, the core thing to understand is that the election laws of the United States, at least in most states, allow for an automatic recount if the election is very close. In, in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, you don't get within that zone. But they also allow for a candidate who has 
questions, concerns, uh, whatever, as regards the results to pay for a full recount. And that's what Stein is doing. This is normal. It happens a lot. Wisconsin had a statewide recount in a state Supreme Court race five years ago. Uh, and it didn't change the results, but it, it did go forward. And, and so I, I'm intrigued by the fact that our president-elect, Donald Trump, seems to be having a meltdown about it. It literally, he has done more to publicize and raise interest in the recounts than anyone else. Well, let's let's start with Wisconsin, which was the first state where Jill Stein filed for a recount. Most Wisconsin ballots are uh, optical scan, uh, I, I understand. And I, I've also been told that they, what the state is planning to do is simply re- run the cards through the machines again and see what if the total is the same. Is, is that what it looks like is going to happen right now? That is what it looks like is going to happen. However, when you do a recount in Wisconsin, the county clerks, there are 72 counties, they have the option of a hand recount or to run them through the machines once more. And some counties, I think, uh, we'll see you know, once this is all formalized, but some counties, I think, will actually do the hand recount, the hand review all the way through, while others will run it through the machine. People who want a really precise count They prefer a hand recount where you look at each ballot for a couple of reasons. One, you can see where there might be a questionable marking, one that would be read for a certain candidate by the machine, but that you might be able to make a case that it it didn't really apply there. And then also to look for any other glitches or quirks as regards um, the, the ballots themselves. But, you know, there was an attempt, there was an attempt to get an order for a hand recount, it does not look like that's what's going to happen in every county. And the Michigan and Pennsylvania recounts are kind of a moving target. We are talking on Tuesday at midday. Where do we stand now in Pennsylvania, where Jill Stein filed on Monday at the Monday afternoon deadline? Mm -hmm. Uh, Where do we stand uh, in Michigan? Well, in each of those places, there are different, you know, Wisconsin, there are different rules. And Wisconsin is a very easy place to file for a recount. You essentially ask for it and you get an approval from uh, the, the state elections commissioners. And they've, they've done that. They've said, you know, look, if the money, if the check is delivered and it cashes, the recount will go forward. In Pennsylvania, it's a much more complicated process. You're, you supposedly have to get not only the request from the candidate, but, you know, you jump through all sorts of hoops as regards election districts across the state. And so where Stein is at right now in advancing this is in court, uh, or at least she has been. And there's been legal wrangling about whether this will go forward. I think it's fair to say that uh, Pennsylvania is the most complicated of these. And we will see, you know, we'll see what standard is, is demanded uh, there on the ground. Now, in Michigan, it's a little more like Wisconsin. You can file, and if you if you meet the standard, uh, you should be able to pull it off. Although that is still, you know, we will see uh, what the response to the filing is. Now, here's where the the most important thing to understand on all this, John, is that uh, there, there's a clock ticking on this, and that's a big deal. When you ask for a recount, 
If you ask for it immediately after the election or in the few days after the election, you've got quite a bit of time. But it, when you do it this late, and this is very late in the game by any measure, you run up against the December 13th deadline for uh, having state counts certified and you know formalized, every I dotted, every T crossed, uh, in order to cast your electoral college ballots. That's a pretty quick timeline. Wisconsin should be able to meet it without a lot of problem if everything comes together in the next couple of days and the recount begins as expected or as at least has been anticipated on Thursday of this week. For Michigan and Pennsylvania, each day that passes with court wrangling or deliberations or whatever uh, makes it harder to hit that December 13th deadline. Well, the big question is whether this pursuit of recounts in these three states is a good idea. At thenation.com, our colleague Bruce Shapiro has argued the whole thing is a mistake. He calls he calls it futile and misdirected. He's also called Jill Stein's seeking a recount in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, quote, nuts. He says, this creates the false hope that a recount could make Clinton president. The real problem, he says, was not with the count itself, but with the vote suppression, the disfranchisement, the new laws that are in effect in a lot of these states. And, of course, the bigger problem is with the Electoral College itself. And uh, the recount kind of distracts from these issues and the fact that Jill Stein has raised now approaching $7 million, Bruce Shapiro says, don't give your money to the Green Party for the recounts. I'm quoting, send your money to the ACLU, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, or Planned Parenthood, or the Committee to Protect Journalists, or NARAL, or any grassroots campaign that will actually fight back against the coming deluge. Close quote, Bruce Shapiro. What do you think of that argument? I respect what Bruce writes there. And I think, uh, you know, look, uh, my sense is that uh, these recounts, that if they if they actually go forward, um, may end up producing results that are are quite similar to what you've already got. And so, if your only standard on recounts is do you get a win or a lose out of it, um, then yes, of course, it's you can argue as Bruce has that that this is you know a pretty pointless endeavor. However, if you are seeking to, you know, look at the election procedures, highlight what you may see as problems with it, or simply draw attention to the closeness of the races, um, it, in a weird way, I, I'm not sure that this has been futile. You know, even this, it, whether the recounts go forward or not, this endeavor. And let me explain why. Donald Trump, instead of saying, oh, I don't care if there's recounts. I won those states. Who cares? You know what I mean? Trump yeah. went hysterical, and he he's displayed a uh, paranoia and a uh, you know a deep sense of uh, dismay as regards discussions about the fact a that he's losing the popular vote by a very wide margin, and b that his electoral college victory is. And pegged to some very, very narrow wins in a handful of states. And sometimes when you raise objections, when you call for recounts, when you point out 
the reality of the popular vote and the flaws in the Electoral College, uh, you do help to raise questions uh, about the supposed and, and, in fact, false claim of a mandate. John Nichols, readamitthenation.com. John, it's always great to have you on the show. It's a pleasure, my friend. We're still thinking about Fidel. He died Saturday. He was 90. For comment, we turn to Katrin Hansing. She teaches sociology and anthropology at Baruch College in the City University of New York. And before that, she was associate director of the Cuban Research Institute at Florida International University in Miami. And she's the author of the book Rasta, Race, and Revolution, The Emergence and Development of the Rastafari Movement in Socialist Cuba. And she's been a leader of the nation's Cuba trips. We reached her in New York City. Catherine Hansing, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Fidel's revolution in the beginning seems like it was the most popular revolution of, of the 20th century. Pretty much everybody uh, was excited and happy about it. Why, why exactly was that? Well, I think in the early days and months of the revolution, most people still thought of Fidel and, you know, the other rebels who'd come down from the mountains into Havana as really having fought against Batista, who was the dictator of Cuba before the revolution. And, you know, this was seen as a time, a new beginning for democracy and social justice. So those were the two platforms that Fidel had really what I don't want to say campaigned on, but talked about in terms of what he wanted to achieve in this new Cuba. And those were two ideas that most people, you know, certainly embraced and could identify with democracy and social justice. And so I think he uh, was able to rally, maybe not all, but most of Cubans um, behind him in the very early days. But that changed very quickly, actually. And what changed it for Cubans? First of all, within already a few months, within the first year after um, the triumph of the revolution, a number of reforms took place that already signaled to some people, particularly people who were part of the then upper middle class and or um, sort of the upper strata of society, that um, Fidel had um, a sort of a different agenda. And so some of the reforms were, um, for instance, the urban reform, um, the agricultural reform, you know, social reforms that definitely benefited most Cubans. But there were um, segments of society, basically those that had under Batista had power, property and prestige were now wondering whether they would be able to uphold that. And as time went by within those first 12 months, they uh, many saw that or felt at least that, you know, this was going to be a different type of revolution than they had thought it would be and started leaving. So this is when you already had large numbers of Cubans leaving, going to mainly Miami and some to Madrid and other places, but mainly Miami, thinking that they would uh, kind of observe what would happen from there and then hopefully return soon under a different government. Do you think it was inevitable that the United States would turn against Fidel's revolution? There was that period in the late 50s when Eisenhower was still president and 
and Fidel had not yet declared himself a, a Marxist, there were at least some people in the United States who thought we didn't have to be enemies with Cuba. Do you think that was ever a realistic hope? You know, I think we have to remember that this was the height of the Cold War. So what was happening in Cuba and between U.S.-Cuban relations at the time was Im embedded in that, in that context, in that political context. Everybody was on edge, right? Um, and so any movement to the left, um, literally speaking, politically speaking, um, was observed in, in the United States government, particularly, as a warning sign, a red flag. Um, and this is why, even though Fidel did not declare Cuba to be socialist or the revolution to be socialist until actually, you know, a few years after the revolution, those early years already, there were reforms that were signaling to a lot of people a very sharp turn to the left. And that's what made people in the U.S. government in particular quite nervous. But I would say with the benefit of hindsight that that um, reaction uh, we would say may now be have been over, you know, overreacting. But it was, you know, those were the times. It was the Cold War. Everybody was on edge and and would not give the other side the benefit of the doubt. Inside Cuba, Fidel's original idea was that the sugar monoculture was part of the colonial underdevelopment of Cuba and that for Cuba to escape from colonialism meant developing a more diversified economy. That idea didn't last very long. Do you think there was ever a chance that Cuba could have escaped that kind of economy? So, yes, I mean, it was, it's sort of been the tragedy of Cuba and in many ways of the revolution. I, I always wonder what would have happened to Cuba and the revolution if, if the U.S. had not set an embargo. That embargo really crippled Cuba's potential, economic potential for diversification and development. Cuba was, before the revolution, dependent, completely dependent on the U.S. for everything, you know, because it only produced sugar, tobacco and coffee and a few other things, but mainly sugar, as you mentioned. It was dependent for importing everything from toilet paper to light bulbs to, you know, food. And when the embargo started, which happened, you know, quite quickly, they were left, you know, from, from one day to the next almost without any other trading partners. And so, you know, within a very short period of time, Fidel, and I, th I think, yes, of course, Fidel and, and the government, but, you know, somebody like Fidel in that time had to make a quick decisions how to keep the population going in terms of food and energy and, and basics like that. And given the Cold War context, they didn't have a lot of options. So I think that the turn towards the Soviet Union was not necessarily something that the Cuban government and Fidel Castro in particular actually had had wanted or had planned. That's why, when and why the, the, the Cubans then turned towards the Soviets and then started you know, this very long, intensive trade um, relationship with not just the Soviet Union, but with the Comic-Con states, Eastern European states, mainly bar barter exchange, by the way. But I think that the diversification was never given a chance. I think we would have seen a very different Cuban and Cuban revolution if uh, the U.S. embargo hadn't happened, but it did. And so the Soviets wanted to have sugar. So it was an oil for sugar trade in goods, which, which, which was actually you know, a good deal for the Cubans. But because of that, they got stuck in this sugar economy and they were not able to diversify. 
Now, you know, moving 30 plus years forward, the end of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Cuban economy, we see that Cuba very quickly during this time called the special period had to diversify. And it did. It opened up its economy to tourism, to some, you know, foreign investment, uh, to nickel, et cetera, et cetera. So it's now actually not so much a sugar economy anymore. Many, most actually sugar, sugar factories have closed partly because they're so old and, you know, dysfunctional. Um, but today, Cuba actually imports sugar, believe it or not. Um, it, it produces some, but it also imports some for its own um, consumption. That diversification um, is, you know, the, it's, I, I think it's the million-dollar question. What would have happened to Cuba, the Cuban Revolution, and its economy if it had been given a chance? It was never given a chance. Of course, we need to talk about politics in Fidel's Cuba, we read over and over that there's been no political freedom in Cuba since the early days of the revolution. The critics of Fidel in America especially say, well, that's inevitable with socialism. What do you think? Well, I think that it is true that um, there are, um, there's a, you know, very big curtailment on freedom of expression and association in Cuba. And this has had a huge impact on not just what people say, the lack of a real civil society, but also it has unfortunately um, produced what I call a culture of fear and distrust amongst Cubans themselves. Cuban security apparatus is very sophisticated. This is one of the reasons why the revolution has been able to remain in place for so long, because there is a culture of fear and distrust amongst people vis-a-vis the security apparatus, but amongst themselves as well, because you never know who's who in Cuban society. And this has had a huge impact on social relations amongst friends, neighbors, etc. So this has actually been one, I think, one of the the biggest sort of negative um, forces in the revolution which has been seen in other socialist countries as well, in other authoritarian countries. So it's not a sort of Cuban phenomenon, but it also does exist in Cuba. But I should add that there are spaces and voices of difference in Cuba, and they have existed throughout the last 50 years. Now, depending on the time, the period in the last 50 years, it has been more difficult and other times easier to express your alternative or different views, whether literally or through art or music or whatever your medium of expression is. But since Raul Castro has been in power, i.e. the last um, 10 years or so, we have observed, people like me who, who work on Cuba, that there are more spaces for being different, whether in the arts, in the religious spheres in Cuba, i.e. in the churches and other religious um, and spiritual spaces. There is now, um, you know, a real very active blogosphere, if you want, a sphere with, of, of Cuban bloggers who are very active, independent journalists, and obviously now also this, inf- uh, this private economy, which is mushrooming like crazy all over the island. And in those activities, we find a lot of people with very different views, expressing them quite openly from the government. So within this larger macro culture of fear and distrust and control, there are more and more spaces of, of difference and resistance, as it were, from, from the government. 
We just have a minute or two left, and we need to talk about uh, the future of Cuba after Fidel. My nightmare scenario is Trump hotels dominate the world of uh, sex tourism and uh, economic subservience to the United States. Please tell me I'm wrong about this. Well, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, John, but okay. I think there are so many different scenarios. You know, I mean, we live in such an unpredictable time, right, in general right now, um, and it's very hard to know what's going to happen. But I think it is very possible that um, over time, Cuba's economy will open up more and more, and there will be more capitalism, as it were, even under a controlled one-party state, as it is at the moment. That is one scenario, and that could include, as you just mentioned, the chain of Trump hotels. But it could also go the other way. I mean, President-elect Trump has, you know, made a number of comments already um, to the contrary, right? That he wants to sort of um, roll back the Obama-Cuba policy. I think regardless of what happens in the United States um, and its policy towards Cuba, I think that the Cuban government under Raul and even after Raul will try very hard to maintain the status quo. That means a continued opening of the private sector in order to give more people the opportunity to make their own living, but also to maintain control. I think that we will probably see a lot less change than we think or some even might hope on the island as we move forward. Katrin Hansing. Katrin, thanks so much for talking with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Now it's time to talk about politics with Walter Mosley. Yes, the Walter Mosley, one of America's best-selling novelists, whose mysteries featuring the private investigator Easy Rollins have sold millions of copies and have been translated into 20 languages. Walter Mosley was named the 2016 Grand Master by the Mystery Writers of America. He's also a member of the editorial board of The Nation, and he writes regularly for the magazine. And his recent book, Life Out of Context, was published by Nation Books. He was born in L.A. At various times in his life, he's been a potter, a computer programmer, and a poet. Now he lives in New York, and now Walter Mosley has written a short book about politics, not about the miserable political campaign that just ended, but about the big picture of capitalism and socialism. He calls the book Folding the Red into the Black or Developing a Viable Untopia for Human Survival in the 21st Century. Walter Mosley, welcome to the program. How you doing? Good. Delighted to uh, be speaking with you. When you were young, I have learned, you spent a couple of years in a Ph.D. program in political theory at UMass Amherst. What, what was grad school like for you? Well, you know, I was having so much fun. <laughs> you know, like, you know, I was in, I was in grad school. I was studying like, you know, everybody, you know, from Aristotle to Hannah Arendt, you know, I, I was, I was reading, you know, Thucydides and, and Nietzsche and, 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 and Wittgenstein. I mean, really, it was so much fun. You know, I, I'm not, I'm not sure I understood everything that I was reading, but I was being introduced to it. I was being introduced to it like a, a new world of thinking and I, I was a, a world of politics that, um, that you know, when you get into the into the later centuries, it's as much in the street as it is in the palace or in the parliament. 
And I was just, I was amazed by it. It's just that, you know, I could never make a living doing it because, you know, actually being a professor of political theory uh, held no real interest for me. Let's talk about the political context in which you wrote this new book, Folding the Red into the Black. Obviously, Trump had not yet been elected when you wrote this. Yeah. One of the things about me, which is different than a lot of people uh, on the left, is I'm very much a, 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 an optimist, and also I'm, I'm really practical. Trump getting elected is, does more for my political agenda than anything else, because, you know, he lied to everybody. Within a year, everybody's going to know he lied. Uh, he has set up a person who we can fight against rather than a person who we agree with, but who's not doing what we want exactly. Excellent. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm really, 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 really happy. This has nothing to do with my book, by the way. Okay. But I, I'm happy that it, for the election because I know that, that the people on the left and, and, and the people in the center who are against him have somebody now to fight against. And within a year, the people who voted for him, they only have us to help them because that's, that's what it is. Uh, that's a wonderful way of thinking about this. Uh, your new book proposes what you call untopia. What is untopia? Yeah. Well, you know, the idea of a utopia, and really like, Thomas More's Utopia is a, is, a, is a gorgeous short book about, about an idea, a fictional idea of a society that's perfect. The problem, of course, when we start talking about societies that are perfect, is that that's fine. Uh, you can have a system and a society defined as perfect. The problem is that human beings are not perfect. And so when you take a perfect system, when, when, when I say perfect, I mean that works, that has a logic, a mathematical logic that works, like socialism or like capitalism, human beings don't fit very well into it. And th therefore, those systems end up being totalitarian. And so what we need to do is to take those pieces of socialism, which Americans need to learn about, and, and uh, uh, capitalism, which other countries need to learn about, and say, hey, let's, let's, let's not be committed to either one of those things. Let's not, be, let's not believe in either one of those things. Let's just take those tools that they offer and use those that we can and not those that we can't. I think it's your, your view of socialism is probably uh, more controversial for our listeners than your view of capitalism. You say you are absolute, <laughs> you say you are absolutely sure that we are not socialist animals. What, what do you mean? Well, you know, I, I love it that you just said that because, you know, that was one of the problems. Like, you know, for instance, Nation Books refused to publish this book. Really? Uh, and, and, and the reason they did was because of my, you know, uh, unrelenting attack. I mean, I have an unrelenting attack on capitalism, yes. but they didn't care about that. They just they, they, they worried about the unrelenting attack on, 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 on socialism. You know, socialists, socialists, bees are socialists. Ants are to, to wasps, termites, migrating geese, schooling fish. All of these creatures are socialists because they work together naturally. They don't complain. Like, you know, if two bees go out and one collects, you know, uh, twice as much pollen as another bee, they don't fight. They don't say, I deserve more. Okay. They do what they do, and they bring that back home. That's their job. 
They are communists in a perfect situation. Human beings, never. We're always going to argue. We're always going to say, I worked harder. We're always going to try to have more. We're going to try to get more. We're always going to compete. All of that is true. You know, all of that is true. And we have to have that along with the notions that keep the whole society working. Like I look at a, at a society, any, any society that needs charity is a society that failed. We need to have a society where everybody has food, everybody has a place to live, you know? But if one guy wants to make more money than somebody else, okay, I don't mind. You can make more money than I make, but I still got a place to live and food to eat, right? You know? but that's kind of like the argument I'm making, and, and it's, it's so antithetical to both systems that uh, it's, it's a reason to write the book. And the book is a monograph, right? I'm not, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying this is what we need to think about. Yeah, and what's the really great thing about this book, I think, is that your goal is that you is not to give us the plan for a specific political system. Instead, you have a much more modest goal of providing tools that, that seem useful in solving our basic problems. And your starting point is the notion of need, of fundamental needs. Let's, let's talk about that. Well, you know, there, there, I mean, like you just look at, look at a society and say, well, what do we need? Well, you know, we, we need food to eat, you know, a place to sleep, an education that keeps us at the level of knowledge as knowledge develops. You know, knowledge, the, the knowledge of the human race doubles every 10 months nowadays before before the 20th century it was every every hundred years now it's every 10 months so we need an education we need uh, medical care we need food we need a place to sleep everybody needs that everybody needs that this is not i'm not I'm trying to be socialist there i'm just trying to say everybody needs that that's 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 obvious people shouldn't be starving shouldn't people shouldn't be sick um people should be able to follow their own uh muse like for instance if you were uh a person who studied diseases. There's a disease along the southern Amazon which affects 300 people a year. And you want to study that one, not the one that Pfizer wants you to study. Hmm. If, if you had a place to live and you had food to eat, you could actually do that on, on, on a computer. And in the end, that might make a bigger impact on our scientific knowledge than all the Pfizer you know, productive medicines that they're creating. And, and that's, you know, that's just what I'm talking about. I'm saying, let's, let's, let's kind of believe in people, believe the way we think, believe the way we are, believe the way that, that we interact with ourselves and our minds. And if we can do that, then, and we don't have to be, you know, like have to be um, committed uh, to, to a system like capitalism, you know, or, 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 or communism, then we can actually be committed to human beings and human beings. There are two things that we worry about health and happiness. That's the only things that we really worry about health and happiness. So in your book, you say the struggle between capital and the social must end. And then you say, first we must limit capitalism. Uh, I'm sure the nation nation books did not object to this part. What, what kind of limits do you have in mind? My problem with capitalism in the, in the, in the modern world, I, I have a, 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 an image in the book where I'm, it's three o'clock in the morning, I'm in Los Angeles, I cross Beverly Boulevard to a 24 hour uh, big, giant 
24 hour drugstore. There's these young 15, 16 year old black kids selling um, um, candy out of cardboard boxes. The candy is, they sell also in, in the store, but they're selling it for half the price because you know, they don't have the overhead that the, that the, that the uh, drugstore has. This is mercantile capitalism. This, this is the basis of capital. Capitalism is based on competition. But what has happened is, is the drugstore owns the city hall and the city hall has passed laws that you can't sell candy bars out of a cardboard box in front of a, a drugstore at three o'clock in the morning. So the idea is once capitalism, the capitalist has enough power to limit competition, well, they're no longer capitalists. They've become totalitarian. They've become fascist. And this is where we're, this is where I'm like, like, like struggling. I'm saying we, we can't allow capitalism to control our, 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 our legislators, our legislations, our laws, our lawyers. We can't let them do that. You know, those things have to be outside, you know, like Plato says, they have to be outside of, 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 of the influence of wealth. And once you have that, hey, you can have all the capitalism you want. And what kind of limits do you propose for socialism? Well, look, I mean, if, if, if you don't, if, if you, like, if someone comes up to you and says, well, you know, we, we gave you a test, you know, we have our standardized test, and we gave you a test, you're really good at uh, uh, chemistry. So we're going to make you a chemist. I said, well, hold up, brother. I'm really interested in, uh, in, in, in taking care of horses. I love horses. I don't, I don't care about chemistry. I, I, like, I like chemistry, but I know, I know, I'm not interested. I want to take care of my horses. Then you should be able to do that. You should be able to do whatever you want. You should be able to go wherever you want. You should be able to think whatever you want. You should be able to study whatever you want. Uh, the, the notion, because socialism, you know, in the end, b- believes that everybody has to work according to their ability. And that, no, you don't have to do that. You can do whatever you want. As a matter of fact, in any culture, you don't have to work at all. What's the whole idea that everybody has to work in this new roboticized world that we live in is insane. I mean, it's insane that you can say, oh, uh, you know, you, you need to go out and, and work lifting, uh, you know, uh, weights and putting them in trucks. I'm saying we already got machines that do that, man. Why should I do that? And I'm part of the culture that invented those machines. So I'm part of the wealth that comes from those machines. You know, I wondered what, (laughs) I wondered, I wondered what you thought about uh, Bernie Sanders, democratic socialist, got 13 million votes more than any other socialist running for office in American history. He, He proposed Universal health care, free college tuition, you know, a living wage, uh, fighting climate change. Uh, I imagine that's the kind of socialism that you're for. Oh, listen, I'm, I'm, I, I, I love Bernie Sanders. It, it, one of the problems is, is that I understand that human beings are not socialists. They're social, but not socialists. And so there's going to be a capitalist element to all of this. And I'm not completely sure that Bernie, like, I wouldn't want to get to the point where Bernie says, well, we're going to outlaw capitalism. And the reason I, and I say that is that, you know, because I understand that, you know, there are people who are naturally capitalist. The problem with capitalists is they, they don't understand that uh, wealth is not unlimited. Wealth is based on labor and labor is always finite. 
you know? And so that's the place where Bernie needs to, you know, inform them. So, well, listen, man, you know, um, for every guy who's worth a billion dollars, we, I got a thousand people who are worth nothing. So something has to happen in that Gulf. I didn't hear that from Bernie, but I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, listen, I'm not trying to make any judgment on him. It might be true that he understands that. We do need a meeting of, of socialism and capitalism, but we also need not to, we need to be committed to health and happiness, not socialism and capitalism. The book is Folding the Red into the Black or Developing a Viable Untopia for Human Survival in the 21st Century. You can read an excerpt at thenation.com. It's called Utopia? Forget about it. It's time for Untopia. Walter Mosley, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for talking to me. It was great. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.